And welcome to the other side of midnight. I'm going to be hosting in place of Richard tonight. My name's Keith Morgan. Normally, I'm doing your audio and I'm doing your technical stuff. But tonight, Richard's internet dropped out just moments before we hit the air. So I will be hosting the show. And uh, I think some of you guys like sometimes when I do host the show. But um, we've got Robert Morningstar and we have Timothy Saunders. And they're going to be talking about Titanic and the loss of the Titan. And I'm going to bring them on because... Uh, I don't like talking that much. And Robert and Timothy have got a nice, a nice little bit of stuff to talk about. So without wasting any time, um, Richard had a whole bunch of things lined up under his items. Um, I wanted him to talk about it over the phone, but he can't see his items. So um, I, I'd have to fill in for what he wanted to say, but I don't have his I don't have his uh, dialogue for what he was going to say about for each one of them, even though I've posted them. So um, without further ado, I'm going to bring our guest on. Hi, Robert. How are you tonight? I'm doing fine. Thank you. And Timothy? Yeah. Good evening. Good morning. Hi, right, guys. I'm glad to have you aboard. And um, we're going to be talking about... Uh, Titanic and Titan and what took place. So um, let's see, who would like to start this off? Because uh, Richard didn't give me an itinerary of how things were going to go. Well, I don't mind uh, commenting. I'm looking at Richard's uh, items, and I think that he really wanted to talk about item number one a lot. And it has to do with Yvadne Prigozhin, the Wagner Group leader accused of betrayal and treason. Well, it turns out that this whole melodrama turns out to have been a tempest in a teapot because the whole thing's over. Um, an agreement was mediated by the president of Belarus, um, Lukashenko. But the whole point was that uh, apparently, it looks like to me there was some kind of friendly fire incident where Russian missiles hit a, an encampment with the Wagner group. And the leader of the Wagner group, Evgeny Prigozhin, uh, got in his tank and raced to Rostov, surrounded the headquarters there, and they took that to uh, be an insurrection there January 6th, a uh, mutiny, an attempt to overthrow Putin 700 miles away, which made no sense to me this morning. I got up very early in the morning. Something woke me up at about 5 in the morning. I couldn't sleep. And I went and checked and found out about this incident. And so... The New York Times, Washington Post, every media in the United States, oh, Putin's going to be overthrown, you know, he's going to be assassinated. Prigozhin is on his way to Moscow, 700 miles away. So we watched it all day. I'm, I'm, in, I'm in like Flynn with a bunch of spooks who were going back and forth all day. And by the, uh, the evening, this, uh, this evening, we got word that the crisis is over. And apparently it was some huge misunderstanding. Of course, you know, the leader of any military group who gets um, hit by missiles from his own side is not going to be happy. So I call it uh, that wonderful phrase that the United States uses so often when they do a major F-up, friendly fire. 
Well, any family, but it is fire. So that's the latest word. Um, Prigozhin has uh, been sedated, uh, placated, and thanks to uh, President Lukashenko of the Belarus, he was the mediator. So that crisis is over okay. for, for the moment. So, yeah, of course, the rest of the topics are topics for tonight. So I'd like to turn it over to Timothy to start talking about Titanic. Okay, Timothy. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I was just reminiscing, actually, Robert. We did a show standing in for Richard some time ago about Titanic, about the whole... Yes, uh, yes, indeed. The, the theory between yeah. the Titanic being swapped mm-hmm. and... Uh, without going into all the details, because that show is obviously available on the other side of midnight.com. But, uh, so we're, we're kind of, what can I say? We have some well, legacy to follow in, in this morning, I believe. Yes, indeed. And as long as, since you mentioned it, I really want to mention our dear friend, our late friend, Gordon James Giannotto. He was the first one to bring this subject up in 2014. I turned down coast to coast AM. And my mind was boggled. I was listening to Gordon James Giannotto, who was also a host, radio host on uh, Revolution Radio. And he was talking about the swapping of the Olympic for the Titanic, which actually, Tim, that program that you and I and he did about three years ago, we actually proved that it is Olympic on the bottom. And it was you who discovered the proof regarding the shape of the windows, uh, the difference between... So why don't, why don't we rehash that? I mean, this audience wasn't listening that night, necessarily. And I think it's the most intriguing part of the entire saga, aside from the um, purported assassination of the three billionaires who were racing back to the United States to stop the, the passage of the Federal Reserve Act. So why don't we go into that? I think it's probably the most interesting part of the whole saga, Starting with the um, the hawk intentionally colliding with uh, the Olympic that started the whole problem with its malfunctions. Well, first let me just say you're very kind to remember it that way, but I, I did not discover, I did not make the discovery of how to prove this. I just, perhaps I, as a yacht designer, I knew which details to look at. I mean, other people have done the research and I was well, able to do to put it out. Yeah. What I mean is you found the pictures and you would put them up in your items. And as I was sitting there listening to all the, the, the discussion going back and forth, I was going over the photographs. And again, my mind was boggling. Oh, hey, mackerel, Tim found the proof. And the proof, folks, was that, as I well, mentioned, <clears throat> well, why don't you tell the audience? Oh, the well, I, I'm just going to need to go back to the main bullet point because there's a lot of a lot of backstory, a lot of details, but I mean, generally speaking, the let, let's see if we can remember it together. The, the, the I think it was more than three years ago as well. I, the Olympic was an almost identical ship that was launched before Titanic. In fact, there were three, weren't there? There was the yeah. Olympic, Titanic, and what was the third one? The um, Britannic. Yeah, Britannic. There we go. So the Olympic was out first, and she was sailing. Uh, I even had to get there. Somehow, the the Navy ship, the Hawk, managed to collide 
with it. And it not, not just a little bump, it was quite a big bang, actually. And the bow of the, the Hawk, which was actually a naval ship designed to ram other ships and basically sink them. So it had a very, very strong reinforced bow and a sharp bow even. Uh, somehow that this naval ship managed to hit, I think it was the aft three-quarters starboard side. That's correct. So um, pretty, much, pretty much where the propeller shafts were underneath the vessel. And the bow penetrated um, a vertical line several, through several decks and also damaged apparently the, one of the propellers or propeller shafts from the starboard side. Right. So it, the, the vessel did not sink. Um, but it, it, it did have to come back for sort of some fairly major repairs. And the materials used on the Titanic and Olympic and the, uh, the Britannic is, is like a sort of a cast iron. And, and the way they put it together is they form these big metal sheets, these huge metal sheets that are actually quite brittle. And they're not always, what can I say, very consistent in their, their metallurgic sort of makeup. So the, the, these massive metal sheets are sort of craned into place. This is during construction. And then the holes, holes are created and hot pot rivets are put in into the holes and banged in when they're red hot. And as the pot rivets um, cool down, they contract and they, they pull the whole metal panel tight next to the next one. And that, that's how basically they build, used to build these size of the ship but the point is that the metal is quite brittle and if the metal content is not well controlled or, or as well controlled as it should be then obviously there can be flaws and weaknesses and it seems that that plus the fact that this naval ship was designed to ram uh, with a very sharp bow actually did some quite considerable damage quite quite serious damage uh, internally structurally and the Olympic went back to back to back to port in, in Belfast. Yes, it's uh, it's remarkable that they were able to save the ship. When you see the the gash, the hole, it was a big triangular hole in in the rear uh, starboard side. And uh, well, you pointed out something that I suspected, and you came to the same conclusion that it was it was intentional. The the collision apparently was intentional because J.P. Morgan had been angling to take over the, uh, the White Star Line. He was the owner of Cunard, and he wanted to monopolize the transatlantic um, trade, uh, transoceanic uh, passenger trade, and he had uh, wheedled a deal. And if uh, White Star didn't come through, he was going to seize almost all the ships in, um, in Britain's, uh, let's call it merchant marine, but specifically the transatlantic fleet that was involved in commerce, cargo, and passenger shipping. So you made the astute observation that you thought it was intentional, and I said, you know, you voiced my thought. I wasn't going to say it, but apparently it was, and it was to thwart J.P. Morgan's attempt to just monopolize the entire North Atlantic. Good, good. J.P. Morgan lend the money to the shipyards in the first place. And so if they did not make their repayments, they would have to 
return the ships or or give the ships up in, in case. That's, that's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. The other- so, so somehow this Olympic became damaged, mm-hmm. and the story was that because the Olympic was such a huge colossal ship, that as as it passed the the hawk, which was going in the opposite direction, apparently, that the the current, I think that's right, the current from the, the Olympic turned the the hawk around in a, in an uncontrolled manner, and then accidentally collided, which is obviously complete bull BS. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, actually, the uh, this is at variance with my recollection of it. It was that the hawk was coming up behind it. And uh, the, the, my recollection of, re, of the reading of the accident was that uh, Titanic was making its way past the, the Isle of Wight uh, and that Hawk came up very quickly behind it and then claimed to have been sucked into the current and uh, spiked the, uh, the Titanic. But it may well be that your scenario is correct, but it doesn't make sense to me if if Hawk was coming down in the opposite direction, the bow waves of the Titanic should have been pushing it away, not drawing it in. So mm-hmm. I remember them saying something about the, the uh, suction of the, of the propellers. And of course, since it was a Royal Navy Board of Inquiry, they were not going to stain the reputation of the Royal Navy, and they laid the blame on the captain of the Olympic. Yes. Which was quite a disgrace. But but then they did patch it up. They did repair it. And you want to tell them what happened after the repair? Well, it, they they took the ship back to Belfast in in the ship. I've actually visited there. I've been in in the, the design drafting office. I went there some years ago, probably twenty years ago, to actually see about this shipyard building uh, a new large vessel. Um, so it was, it was quite amazing to go in the very rooms and you know, buildings that have been depicted in all the photographs. So yes, the Olympic came back to the shipyard. It was uh, next to Titanic, which was nearing completion at this stage, and also that the Britannic was the third one that was in the next day, I believe. I mean, these are huge ships. I mean, if anybody's seen the photographs, the propellers are ginormous. You know, the, the bow of the ship is towering above the, the town, Belfast. I mean, now it's Belfast is very different, of course. Um, and the theory uh, is that rather than um, rather than, than, than uh, just patch up the Olympic and put her out as she was, the theory was that one weekend, and apparently one weekend if it was possible, all the crockery and silverware and anything labeled with Olympic was taken off and everything with Titanic was put on board the Olympic. Um, the propeller taken from the Titanic and put on the Olympic, uh, Olympic because that was damaged and they're, they're quite huge things and quite difficult things to forge in a short, short period of time. So that was borrowed from the actual Titanic and put back on the Olympic. And the nameplate at the bow uh, was also adjusted, taken off the Titanic and put on the Olympic. 
And that is interesting because we found photographs, if you recall, of yes. what we think is the Titanic at the bottom of the sea with mm -hmm. letters of Olympic popping through the corrosion. Yes, I, I found a photograph uh, taken by one of the uh, submersibles, uh, one of John, uh, Cameron submersibles or the wooden hull submersible, and it was very dark. And so I put it in the computer and did a computer enhancement and that's right. Yes. And I, and I could make out MP. And as we said on the show, there's no MP in Titanic. Exactly. So that was one, one proof. But there is another element that we've left out, which is that the Olympic, after the repair, was able to sail. But when she sailed, she was crabbing. She wasn't uh, being true to her, the, the keel line. That's that right. Twisted, that? Yeah. Do you want to describe that uh, for the audience? Don't You're halfway there already, so. Okay. So people noticed that when Olympic set off on uh, another transatlantic voyage, that she was uh, slipping sideways. She wasn't sailing straight and true, and they had to, they had to compensate uh, with uh, rudder and RPMs on the props to try to make her go straight. But the reason um, that ultimately they decided to uh, basically scuttle her was that on the next to the last trip, Olympic making its way between New York and Southampton passed through the St. George's Bank and the captain thought that he had enough clearance from the bottom. It must, it must have been towards the low tide. But he thought that he had clearance and he sailed through the St. George's Bank. But he didn't know that there was a sunken ship there. Nowadays, if you go into nautical maps, you'll see the sites of sunk uh, uh, wrecks or sunken ships marked clearly on, on nautical charts and their depth. But they didn't do that in those days. So the... Olympic, you know, plowed through the St. George's Bank and it T-boned this sunken ship that was uh, several feet below the water and it rolled like a barrel under the Olympic, damaging the entire hull from, uh, from bow to stern, having spun this sunken freighter, I suppose it was, uh, rolling it like a barrel un under a log. And it really damaged the entire bottom. And they knew that it could not uh, successfully uh, continue traversing the Atlantic Ocean, especially with the, with the hype that they were pushing in advertising that um, these ships were faster, the fastest ships on the Atlantic uh, Ocean. And it was a big race between Cunard and White Star as to whose ships were faster. But apparently the Olympic and the Titanic being newer and um, more up-to-date technology, they were going to be faster. So when they found out, it was basically a total wreck. And you can take over the, uh, the recounting of the legend and what they did after they swapped them uh, in Belfast. They, they pulled them out of their slips one night and in the middle of the night, as they say, in that dead of night. And then they swapped 
all of the accoutrements, you know, the the silverware and plates and placards, whatever said Olympic went to Titanic, whatever said Titanic went to the Olympics, but they weren't able to fool the workmen and the crew. So why don't you take it up from there? That's another interesting part of the story. There were were some some local workers and so on who were aware of what was going on, obviously, because they were the ones carrying the the porcelain and silverware and so on. And they, they were paid off, apparently. Um, I don't know if some discussions were going on over, over pints of Guinness in the evening or whatever. But, uh, it, was, it must have been fairly obvious there, and word did not get out. But there was one, one detail. Um, I'm sure there were many details, but there was one particular detail that was physically different between the two vessels. And that was, I forget which deck it is, but I remember we, we pulled up all the drawings before. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yes. They were able to take the profile of the Titanic and overlay it over the, the profile of the Olympic. Mm-hmm. And you can just to prove as, as well what, what, you know, what was being previously discovered. And that was at the forward end of one of the upper decks. I think it's, it's either the first or the second deck that's painted white above the, the black hull. There were minor differences in the spacing and the number of the round portholes, the small portholes. And that was an intentional difference, uh, an evolutionary step, an evolutionary uh, improvement um, between the design, you know, the, the drawing board of the Olympic and the Titanic. And this was, this was like a, a marked physical difference. But I mean, let's face it, it's such a huge ship that if you stand there, you, you could barely see the difference. Can I ask a question? Of course. Um, were they doing this because the Titanic was new and the value of the Olympic had degraded, so they would make the, the Olympic, the Titanic, get rid of her and get the amount paid to them that they would have gotten for this brand new ship that would have been much more valuable? Is that kind of the conclusion we're coming to here? Why they actually, actually he, he, Morgan and White Star... Not insured. They insured it for twice as much as it was worth. It's like like a nine eleven motif. Yeah, exactly. I, yeah. Well, I think that's where they got the idea for the nine eleven insurance scam. Mm. We can talk about that later, but you are right, Keith. Um, they saw the loss, and the loss was uh, staggering. So what they did is they insured the fake Titanic having swapped it for Olympic for twice as much as it was worth. And you know what? It took until 1960 for that insurance claim to be resolved. And I know because I have a friend named Roy Schaefer who worked for the company in North American insurance company, which ultimately had to make the payout. So it wasn't an easy, uh, an easy deal on which to collect, but whatever they collected, it was a fraud that was pulled off on it. Aside from the portholes, um, Tim and I, we, we noticed that the side of the, the side of the both ships that, where it's the painted white, the main, where the main deck is, there is a, um, a bulkhead, 
a sidewall, let's call it that, and that the stern, toward the stern, where it goes from solid wall and curved down to the rear deck, the curvatures of the steel that was cut, that was different. So the curvature of the craft that's on the bottom of the Atlantic is Olympic. The rectangular windows of the craft that is on the bottom of the Atlantic are rectangular and they're not square. And from pictures that we have of the new Titanic and the new Olympic, we know that the rectangular windows were characteristic of Olympic. But you know, our our late friend, our late friend, Gordon James Giannotto, who brought this story to us and did the show with us, he pointed out another, another really important thing. When you look at the wreck of the Titanic on the bottom of the Atlantic now, you'll notice that in the rear section, the deck has collapsed. The stern, the stern is intact, but this whole section uh, behind, uh, behind the main deck has collapsed. And many years later, you know, or just before Gordon passed away, he was, he was really obsessed with this story. And uh, he, he took in every detail. He pointed out to me that that section underwater collapsed while the rest of the superstructure has stay, stayed standing. And he says that, he said to me then, that it was because they were not able to repair the entire rear deck and they had shored it up with timbers. So the timbers deteriorated, rotted underwater, and they collapsed, the wood collapsed, and so the deck collapsed. And if you look at the underwater photographs of Titanic uh, taken by Woods Hole and Bob Ballard and uh, James Cameron, you do see that characteristic, and that for me was the binding tie. That was the one that really settled the whole affair. So, so do you guys think that they actually sacrificed those people for a, an insurance fraud? Well, there's, we're coming up on a break in a couple of minutes, but there's also some other corroborating evidence that kind of joins the dots and it looks that way, Keith, yes. Yes, it wasn't as cold-blooded as it turned out because the story was that they were planning to have a rescue ship called the California. And the California sailed from New York heading east as Titanic was heading west into the iceberg field, which which they knew was there. And apparently California... Sole cargo on the California was? I think it was 800 woolen blankets, remember? And life, life jackets. And life right? jackets, right. And they weren't able to explain, you know, what it was, was hanging around. Yeah, it was definitely it. hanging around. And so that's part of it. They missed, they missed the, um, the connection, mixed signals, because when Carpathia shot flares that were supposed to be seen, uh, they were supposed to be seen by um, Titanic. There was a, a Norwegian whaling vessel killing seals and uh, illegally on one of those icebergs. And they fired their flares 
to warn their men to get back to the ships because they thought the Royal Navy might be coming by somebody, you know, some, well, it was the Royal Navy they were worried about because they were the policemen of that area of the uh, Atlantic. And they were, they were, Britain had made the, the laws against um, seal hunting illegally and whale hunting, I imagine, at the time as well. So they just hightailed it, but they put, they shot up a flare uh, to warn their men and California stopped thinking that was uh, Titanic. So they were quite a, a bit of a way apart when these events happened. Okay. So the rest plan failed. Okay, Rob, um, we're coming up on the uh, bottom of the hour and uh, I'm going to take us into break. Uh, you're listening to the other side of midnight. Our host, uh, your host for tonight is me, Keith Morgan. Uh, Richard lost his internet just moments before we hit the air, so I had to step in. Uh, our guests are Timothy Saunders and Robert Morningstar. And we're talking about the loss of the Titan and Titanic, and it's a really interesting story of what's going on. Sounds like a watery 9-11. So we'll be back in a moment. The other side of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and nonlinearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side at midnight.com. side of midnight um, where we've got a great conversation going on about Titanic and the Titan. Let's pick up where we left off. Uh, Robert, do you have more to contribute? Um, did I lose you, Robert? Or are you muted? Unmute. Or... I, was muted. I, was, I, was, I was muted, but I had to get a cup of coffee because I've been up all day since the very dawn. Yes, um, other details. Well, yeah, there's controversy because a lot of people said that uh, the survivors said they didn't see an iceberg. And the story was that there was a 300-foot gash in the side of the ship. And going back to metallurgy 
as Jim explained, the Titanic was uh, compiled out of huge uh, iron, iron plates. It wasn't steel. And they were bolted together. The other thing that happens to that kind of steel, mm-hmm. uh, me, that kind of iron, is that once it gets into the cold waters of the Atlantic, it becomes more brittle. But the controversy lies with the fact that many people say, most of the passengers said that they didn't see any iceberg. And then there's the legend of the 300-foot gash. In my items, I have included a very good, a very good um, documentary. It is item... Yes, uh, I think it's item number number two. Video documentary investigating the sinking of the Titanic. And it's uh, rather ironic that one of the people that appears in this documentary is the French, uh, the French gentleman who passed away in, which is uh, Paul Laviolet. Uh, I'll have to look at uh, my article on it to get the correct pronunciation of his name. I'll, I'll tell you in a second. But he went down to the Titanic 72 times. And he's uh, speaking in this documentary, and he says, I've been down there 72 times, and I've never seen a 300-foot gash in the side of the Titanic, which, you know, opens up the question, was it an iceberg or was it a bomb? I'll send it back to Tim. Perhaps he can uh, elucidate on that. I would like to point out article number one, SOS, the Titan is missing. Why no SOS? And I've included in in the article, it's quite a lengthy article. I started it last Sunday, and I finished it uh, yesterday with finding of of the debris field and um, the announcement by the U.S. Navy that they had heard the explosion, which makes me suspect that the suspense that was maintained and hyped up, that there was a political element behind hiding the fact that they knew on day one what had happened. James Cameron, who made the film and made the dives and did the 3D experience of going down to Titanic, he said he knew it in his bones. He knew in his bones that it was gone, that it was an implosion. And so Paul-Henri Nargiolet, let me give you the names of the people who were aboard in memory of those people. Stockton Rush was the CEO and owner of uh, Ocean Gate. Paul-Henri Nagiolet, he was a marine archaeologist. Personally, I consider it a grave robbing, going down to Titanic and uh, scooping up uh, artifacts and then selling them for millions of dollars uh, it's kind of like a tomb robber in, uh, in Egypt. The next man was Hamish Harding. And, of course, uh, Mr. Suleiman and Shahzada Dawood. Uh, Mr. Dawood was the richest man I've heard, and uh, described as the richest man in Pakistan. 
all of them multimillionaires, which makes that parallel with the three billionaires who were on the Titanic, John Jacob Astor, Benjamin Guggenheim, and Isidore Strauss. But this is a very interesting little piece of video. The, it's actually, as far as I'm concerned, the best documentary on the subject. And they call it Investigating the Titanic, Drying Up the Ocean. So they do computer graphics of the wreck, and they take away the sea. So they just show you the Titanic as if it had wound up on a desert. And a little later, we're going to talk about Stockton Rush and his attitude toward marine safety. But um, they're now there. They're not even in the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. They are part of the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, they were liquidated. Mm-hmm. I'll send it back to him. Go ahead. Well, I got a comment, if that's okay. Sure. This is when, a great comment. when I saw that uh, submersible that was supposed to go to those depths, I, I got the feeling that it was not well constructed. Um, just looking at it, um, I, I just got this feeling. And, and when they said it was missing, the first thing I thought was it imploded it, because it wasn't well constructed. I, I'm just looking at it. It didn't look like it was well done. So um, that well, was my first opinion. Oh, you're right. You're absolutely right. First impressions are often the best impressions. But you're absolutely right. The, the owner, Stockton Rush, said this. And it's in the article. He did an interview, and he said that he thought that safety is waste. He told CBS News, you know there's a limit. At some point, safety just is pure waste. I mean, if you just want to be safe, don't get out of bed. Don't get in your car. Don't do anything. At some point, you're going to take some risk, and it really is a risk-reward question. I think I can do this just as safely by breaking the rules. How's that for an epitaph? Well, that, that is an epitaph. But, I mean, he, he didn't technically break the rules because Titanic's in international waters, and therefore right. most of those rules don't apply to any vessels going down there. So once these people, these passengers or victims, whichever way you want to look at it, once they signed the waiver, which was pretty pretty clear. I've seen video coverage of somebody reading it, one of the waivers, and actually signing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it does say this is absolutely an experimental vessel. Um, I can't remember the exact quote, but something along the lines of, uh, you know, it, it, there is a possibility of, you know, damage uh, injury or total loss of total loss and loss of life or something along those lines fine here and uh, yeah I mean Keith you mentioned your first look I mean I've, I've been looking at it quite closely and, and listening quite closely to a number of people uh, I've been pulling up images and I've been looking at the construction techniques and, and so on involved and the design is very easy to say with, with hindsight but uh, I would say the materials they used are questionable, and the choice of materials and the choice of construction, I'd say, is very questionable. And the design features, in my opinion, which are uh, ridiculous to the extreme in some cases. Um, but on the other hand, you know, there are other features which are totally normal for submersible and and uh, 
probably in shallow water, it would have been fine. But the thing is, going down to 4,000 meters, that's a hell of a way down. Um, what's that in feet? That's what, 13, 12, 12 and a half, 13,000 feet or something like that. That's a long way down. 12,000 feet was the, yeah. target, the target depth. And I'm going to make my case later on that this was caused by human error and the human error was uh, stopped and so we're going to get into the pressures. Uh, at the moment, I'm copying a link that I'm going to um, put in the chat and hopefully uh, Keith can play it for us. It's actually a facsimile of a Morse code message. And I think uh, the audience might enjoy hearing what a, I think a query uh, might have sounded like uh, in Morse code trying to contact either Titanic or Titan. So whenever you're ready, I think we'll give uh, the audience uh, an acoustic experience of all technology which is uh, tried and proven because the New York Times is the first newspaper to learn of the Titanic's sinking because a young ham radio operator in New York City was monitoring um, you know, open frequencies. And he picked up, he picked up the, um, this, the, the transmission, the Morse code transmission, which uh, Titanic sent an SOS. He picked it up and he raced down to the New York Times and gave him the scoop. So okay. um, I'm ready uh, whenever you want to play it. Yeah, play it now, and, and uh, then we can uh, we can translate it. Okay. The Tempest by William Shakespeare. <laughs> that was quite long, Robert. <laughs> According to what it says, it said U.S. Coast Guard calling Titan. Well, the translation was, um, like I said, I made up, I made up the signal. Okay. And it was U.S. Coast Guard calling Titan. Why no SOS? Um, then goes on uh, to say, uh, question, loss of propulsion. Hardware malfunction, loss of communication, or human error. And so I will make the case that later on that it was human error. Let me turn it back to Tim. I think, I think it would be useful, useful to go through the, the, the echo there. 
be useful to go through the, the, the basics of the design just to point out how how it was made, how it was designed. Um, it it is essentially a two titanium half or two titanium domes, um, one at each end. Uh, the the cylinder in the middle um, was was a a rolled rotated uh, rotationally uh, rolled uh, carbon fiber element. I'm, I don't know for sure, but I would imagine it's prepreg, which means that the carbon fiber already, which is kept cold from the you know the day it's created in the factory, is kept cold and it has the resin impregnated into the fiber. So this continuous ribbon was rolled, I should say, the cylinder was rotated, and then the ribbon um, was like like a like a ball like a reel of cotton, if you like, the reel of cotton being the cylinder, and the cotton being the carbon fiber, like a ribbon of carbon fiber is about I don't know I'm guessing six inches wide, something along those lines, maybe wider, and the cylinder was revolved, and the cotton was loaded up and wound up around, increasing the wall thickness of the cylinder, until it became I think it was five inches thick. So that, that's a lot of carbon fiber, and it's a lot of a lot of rolling that cylinder. Um, and ultimately, with prepreg again, I'm guessing this. I don't know this, but I'm imagining that this is probably the most logical thing: is that the prepreg carbon fiber was then put into an autoclave, where um, it, it's the pressure is increased and the temperature is increased, and then the resin, which was kind of frozen. In, in the uh, the carbon fiber itself, then comes out and impregnates the whole uh, material, so it becomes like a, like a wine glass. And you flip the corner of the wine glass, and it, it, it's just ringing. And this the idea is that this carbon fiber becomes like it, in one uh, sort of heating and pressure system, it will it will become like one. What can I say? Uh, totally solid, uh, impenetrable surface is, is the idea. Incredibly strong. Uh, it's also how we build masts on, on sail ships and so on, the, the carbon fiber racing ones as well. I mean, they're incredibly strong. Um, the preparation for it can be months. And then the autoclave, the heating up and that the pressure uh, session maybe takes 24 hours, maybe 48 hours. It depends on, on the products and the size and so many other different factors. So essentially you have this incredibly strong cylinder with two um, titanium ends, which domes, which are, which are then sleeved over and essentially bonded on. I mean, I saw a video of, you know, this bonding paste between the, the titanium. Titanium is a very strong, very, very expensive metal. Um, but essentially it was bonded on like two end caps onto the cylinder. Now, obviously when you go up high in altitude, then any air inside is trying to get out and expand into the atmosphere where the pressure is lower, but underwater it's completely the opposite way around. Any, all the atmosphere is trying to get inside and penetrate the, the submersible. So by the time you get down to you know, 4,000 meters or thereabouts. I mean, you're talking about absolutely incredible amounts of power, uh, pressure, uh, all trying to compress and push this thing down and just, just trying to collapse it into 
into nothing. So everything has to be pretty, pretty strong. Let's put it that way. How does get in the vessel? Um, one end is unbolted, and people climb in uh, into sort of the end of the open cylinder. Um, this is this is part of the, the titanium dome. And once people are inside, then the dome is, is closed up. I guess you know. I hope they checked for any any you know dust particles and so on around the, the flanges of the between the, the titanium dome and the ring that's bonded on the end of the cylinder. And essentially, a number of bolts are tightened up, and that's it. People are inside. If you want to come out, you have to unbolt all of these bolts around the outside of the circumference of the dome, and then the machine, the, the, the crane, I guess, the crane or the, the, the hydraulic system. Again, I don't know 100%, but there is some machine to aid that, you know, kept pulling this heavy end cap off. And then people are allowed to, to walk in and out, uh, to walk out of it. Now, there was also a glass, a glass window. There was a window at one end, which, in fact, I believe was not glass. Um, and that, that was acrylic, it's as far as I can see from the research I've done so far, the acrylic. And probably the thickness of that acrylic would have been, I don't know the dimensions, but we're talking incredibly thick. So whether it's, it's uh, you know, six inches thick, eight inches thick, 10 inches thick, I really don't know the thickness, but I mean, we're talking about a massively thick acrylic uh, window pane. And, uh, as well, part of the construction of this, wouldn't they have tested uh, that before they actually put people in them? They, they did a number of test dives. Um, but what's interesting is apparently this is called, is it called Cyclops 2, I believe? Um, but somewhere along the evolution of the, the build, there were problems. And the manufacturers who were... were brought in to sort of to build this, this, this vessel, put it together, assemble it, um, had problems. And they actually said, well, I think we're going to have to do it again. And I think that whether it was the end cap mounting or bonding or something along those lines, I, I don't really know all the details, but there was a significant problem earlier on. And the production was halted and it was reversed. And it, it needed to be reworked before it was able for the product project was finished so right. even before it, it became wet it, it had it had an issue i'm sorry to be so vague but i'm I'm going on writing on words i've heard in various interviews and as opposed to you know having a yeah i read a bit about it and one of the things one of the lapses in safety was that stockton rush was told that he should have it tested by a third party and he refused to do that he was told that machinery like this, new technology, uh, not only had to be tested uh, thoroughly by the manufacturer, but that they should hand it over to a third party to do the testing themselves uh, to confirm the safety. But as you heard me read his statement, he said safety is a waste. So I, I think his uh, spirit may be regretting those words because they're going to be his epitaph, but it's going to be a lesson to anybody else 
who gets involved in such ventures, whether they are under sea or in outer space. This brings to mind um, another tragedy, similar, because I'm going to make the, the case that the implosion was caused by uh, negligence. But it reminds me of the crashes of one of the most beautiful airliners of all time. Actually, the first jet airliner was uh, made by Great Britain. It Comet. was the Havilland Comet. Mm-hmm. And it was absolutely beautiful air, aircraft with uh, swept back wings and the engines mounted inside nacelles in the wings. They didn't hang out. They're very streamlined but they started to fall out of the sky. And when they brought them up, the analysis was that they had succumbed to metal fatigue. And the reason was that the pressurization of the cabin and the depressurization over hundreds of takeoffs and landings had created metal fatigue and hairline cracks in the aluminum composite that was used in 1948 through 1952. You know, Robert, you yeah. that you read my mind. I was going to reference that, that, that plane myself. Well, and you, go ahead, tell us more. Well, the, there's a specific reason why the metal fatigue was occurring. And I agree. It, I'm not biased because it's a British design or whatever. But I mean, if you go back, it was literally one of the first airliners. This is before, I don't think it's before, but certainly in parallel to when Boeing were, were developing their also their, their first airliner as well. I mean, it, it could have been, you know, the predominant airliner in the world, but it didn't it because unfortunately it fell out of the sky, yeah. um, which is obviously not very good for its uh, reputation. But there was a very specific reason why the metal fatigue occurred, and that is because the portholes, which are... Um, actually a nightmare, an engineering nightmare for any aeroplane. It'd be much, much better to have little cameras on the outside of the, uh, the plane and have little flat screen TVs screens on the inside and just pretend you're looking out the window when in fact you're looking at a TV screen behind a curtain or behind a blind with a video camera on the outside because that way you keep the structure intact. It's a far, far better way. Um, but of course now we have technology where we do have flat screens, but again, when, when these airlines are developed, there was no such thing as a flat screen. It was all cathode ray tube and the depth of a television was, you know, what, you know, 12, 18 inches deep or something. So that was not possible then. But to come right back to it, so portholes being an engineer's nightmare, the comet had square corners and they actually corrected the problem and they stopped falling out of the sky very quickly as soon as they put a radius in each corner of the porthole. And once you have a rounded corner, then the stress does not culminate in that corner and those fractures never materialize. It's just as simple as that. Right. The sad thing, similarly, you know, Stockton Rush was warned about material structural failures and the need for testing. But the FAA, when they looked at the plans of the comet, originally they said to the de Havilland designers, you know, it's a bad idea to have square windows on the craft precisely for the reason that Tim has outlined. It concentrates the stresses right at the corners. And that's exactly where the stress fractures began. And then 
propagated into other sections of the fuselage. So the FAA told the Haviland, no, you know, you really ought to put round or oval windows. And that's why when you get in airliners today, you don't have, you don't, you don't have right angle corners on any of your windows. You also have a double plexiglass uh, inside and out, which uh, causes some very interesting video effects when you're shooting video at a bright object. The object will be reflected on the inner panel back into the inside of the outer panel and you'll get uh, what looks like UFOs in your video. Mm-hmm. So that was that was a big flaw. There's a there's a great movie. They were you know this was a, a terrible terrible thing that was happening and Hollywood jumped on the case and they made a movie analogous to this story and it was with James Stewart and Marlena Dietrich and it's called No Highway in the Sky and it's about airplanes that uh, they were crashing and their tails were falling off. And James Stewart plays an eccentric engineer who's figured it out that the vibrations and the stresses are going to make the tail fall off. And he, he gets a little bit, um, he gets a little bit eccentric about it. And he's on an airplane with Marlena Dietrich and he goes over to her and he says, look, I think the tail's going to fall off this plane. So if anything happens, the safest place is way back there behind all the seats with your back. To, to the rest of, of the seating and maybe you'll survive. And so uh, he creates this uh, hysteria. And then in, in another flight, you know, he's called up before the Congress to testify on safety and he gets on an airplane and in, he just wants to stop it from taking off. So he pulls the landing gear up while uh, the plane is taxiing to prevent it from going up. So he wrecks the plane but ultimately, he did save he did save the uh, passengers because during the hearings, they've been doing these testing, stress testing. They take an airliner and they start hammering away, creating vibrations on it to uh, see uh, okay. the effect. Robert, I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to break in. Uh, we're uh, a few seconds okay. out from the uh, top of the hour. So, okay, I'll finish it after the break. Okay. You're listening to the other side of midnight. Our guest tonight is uh, Robert uh, Robert Morningstar and Timothy Saunders. We'll be back after the break. Midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. 
liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. side of midnight okay this is getting really interesting uh, the technologies involved the the politics involved and the clandestine stuff going on behind the scenes that led to titanic oh well this is the world we live in but okay we got to grin and bear it because uh, they're not going to do the right thing unless you keep an eye on them and if they think they you know, nobody's watching, they're going to try to get away with stuff. Boy, I could tell you. Let's get back to Robert and to Timothy. Hey, Timothy. Uh, well, let me finish the Jim Stewart, James Stewart story. It's a really great film. So they are testing the, the aircraft. In, uh, they put it up on jigs and start shaking the tail. And he's convinced it's going to fall off. And while he's doing the, the hearing, it, it's the, it hasn't fallen off. But shortly thereafter the whole tail section of this airliner comes, uh, just breaks off the f- at the fuselage, the tail and the rear end of the aircraft come, come apart. And apparently his calculations had been off because he'd been calculating them at normal temperatures, but he had miscalculated because the air temperature makes a big difference when you go up 30,000 feet, uh, 35,000 feet, the temperature goes to 50 below zero. Now the testing of the comet when they suspected that these stress fractures were the cause they they needed to prove it so they took the entire airliner they created um a well and they filled it with water and they sank uh they sunk uh, an entire comet in in the in the water and then they pumped water to inflate the uh, fuselage and then deflate it with water to accelerate the process. You know, it would take years to do it with, with air. So they figured by using water, they could inflate the, the, uh, com- the passenger uh, and uh, pilot, uh, the cockpit, over and over and over again. And sure enough, after uh, several trials of inflation and deflation, the stress fractures started to form and precisely where it had been predicted at the corners of the rectangular windows. So let's turn it back to Tim. That's an incredible story. It makes a lot of sense to, uh, you know, to make such a test. 
uh, yes. to make a well or reservoir or whatever it was to dig enough to put a whole aircraft in is quite incredible. Well, um, I have a, a kind of little thing to talk about here. Uh, when I was flying back from uh, out in uh, uh, in Austin, Texas, after my son's wedding, I'm sitting at the window seat, and we're still at the gate. They haven't started up the um, left wind uh, engine yet. And this 12-ounce water bottle is empty. It's blowing around right in front of the engine. Now, if that engine had been on, it would have sucked it into it. And no telling what kind of stuff it would have done, especially with the melting plastic and shredding it and all that stuff. It could have caused a major damage. Um, and I called the uh, stewardess and said, hey, let the pilot know that there is debris of a plastic bottle roll- blowing around in front of his engine. And they did. Luckily, one of the uh, the guys running the running the conveyor belt for the luggage loading, he saw it after a while and he picked it up. And about that time, the other guys came around, started looking for it, and then I told it, yeah, it was, you know, they had found it. But little simple things like that, most people don't realize. Hey, that can cause major problems, you know. And I just had to speak up. Um, uh, maybe he would have found it. He would have saw it before, but it, I guess uh, blowing around all over the place and nobody was paying any attention to it or they didn't see it or whatever, but he did because it blew up underneath his or alongside of his, uh, his conveyor belt uh, truck. And uh, I just thought it was, you know, things like that get overlooked and they cause major problems down the road, especially when you're going to deal with your flying, you know, well, that's an astute observation because in the U.S. Air Force and the U.S. Navy, they before operations and uh, carrier operations and uh, airfield operations uh, take place, men are assigned to walk the length of the runway or the carrier uh, to look for foreign objects, FOD, foreign object damage, because those jets will easily ingest a plastic bottle, but they'll pick up, once they crank them up, they'll suck in screwdrivers, tools, even people. Some of the most tragic accidents in the U.S. Navy have been uh, men that were ground crew that were working too close to an engine that cranked up and their, their entire body was sucked in to the engine and they were killed. I remember so, there was an episode like that, but this one person, he was he was saved because his clothing or something got caught on something going in, and he was just inches away from the turbine blades, Yeah, and they were able to stop and shut it down and get him out alive, thank mm-hmm. goodness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you can imagine what happens to the, the rotors. Uh, there are two sets of blades inside a jet engine. They're called stators and rotors. Stators are static, they're blades, but they stay in place. And the rotors are giant wheel propellers that spin. So as the rotors in a sequence, they, got, they, they name them N1, N2, N3, and so on. So when the N1 uh, rotor starts to spin up, it creates air pressure between it and the next, uh, the static wheel, the, the stator. And that creates a higher pressure. Then that high pressure goes into the next 
segment where the N2 rotor spins it up, takes the already compressed air and compresses it even more. And so in stages, the air is compressed to a very, very high density at the end to come out as the uh, jet stream. And to that, uh, for those of you who've heard the term afterburners, uh, the afterburners are even more powerful boost where they'll pour fuel into the final segment and ignite it. And that's what it means, afterburners. But you go a lot faster, but you run out of fuel a lot uh, more quickly. But that's basically how a jet engine works. Yeah. Robert, before we, before we go any further in the, uh, the, the aviation direction, let's go back to the submarine. Just okay. So they- sure. One of the that a lot of people have commented on is that it was being controlled by a uh, a Logitech, yeah, like game controller, game console controller. Yes. I mean, there's there's two two ways of looking at that. That one way is that it's uh, you know there have been absolutely millions or billions of those things made and they've been thrown around the room by teenagers and younger for for years and years and so they're fairly robust. They did have spares on board. It's questionable that it was a, a Bluetooth version as opposed to a, a cable connect version. Um, but on the other hand, you know, these game controllers are also used to, to fly drones, which, you know, shoot down and bomb people. Mm-hmm. And nobody's complaining about that. So I, d- I don't really have a big issue with the game controller type interface. Uh, the Bluetooth is questionable, I would say. Um, there are two computers on board uh, that control the thrusters. And the day before, there was, there was actually a, quite a mixed emotions video on YouTube at the moment um, with a young guy who would have died the day before on, on the Titan, except for the fact it was called off. And uh, so, you know, he, he, he's showing his video log and starting out happy and they, they went to a flower shop and they bought a wreath and they presented that to the sea on the day before to the, you know, to the, excuse me, the survivors, but also the people who lost their life on the Titanic. So it was like a sort of a typical, you know, this is me doing my thing. I'm with my girlfriend, blah, blah, blah. And it was quite interesting. But what I found very interesting was that they had technical problems the day before the sub, they, they, they were not able to go out to sea because the sub needed some work, in inverted commas. There was a communication problem. Uh, one of the computers was not performing as it should have done. And that one of those computers is what actually controls some of the thrusters. So that to me is a red flag straight away. That was the day before. Um, anyway, going on. But the rest of the interior was, was pretty much empty it was like a like a cylinder where i mean i I think it's very strange that people even need to sit on the floor um you pay a quarter of a million dollars and you sit on the floor i mean at least you'd have a little cushion or something with you or (laughs) a stool or something i don't know i mean maybe weight was that critical that they they uh they didn't want to um you know, put anything unnecessary in there. I know that they were very strict about weighing each each person when they went in with their gear on, and therefore that equals the ballast and the amount of air pressure and buoyancy and so on. Um, but you know, you can also make that equilibrium with with 
a seat in there as well, or, or five seats in there. I mean, it, it could be aluminium, it could be carbon fiber seats. They weigh nothing. Mm-hmm. But it's pretty odd that it's just empty. So maybe not only safety is a waste, but also comfort is a waste. But the thing that really I found bizarre is there was a toilet on board behind the curtain. Okay, that may be useful on young, long dives. Um, not so much privacy if you're paying a quarter of a million dollars and you need to sit on the toilet, which is just behind the curtain from everyone else. But that, that's okay. That, that's a choice. But the really, really bizarre thing was somebody thought it was a good idea to put a window next to the toilet, even on, you know, multi-million dollar yachts that I design. Sometimes we do not put a window next to a day head on the main deck. I'm not saying that that's, that's normal. We always try and put something there. We always want to have natural light in, in a, a luxury yacht. But there are some cases where we say, okay, well, in that particular crew cabin or that particular crew suite, we're not going to put a window in because it, it doesn't align with the, the structure or, um, you know, there's, there's a feature on the outside where a window would, you know, a porthole would not really be appropriate or so on. So, okay, day head. For the crew, maybe there is no, no porter and no window. You put it in you know, natural lighting and so on. But in a submersible that's going down 4,000 meters, where having just recounted this whole story about the comet and those, the dangers with those portholes, some, some person thought it was a great idea to put a window next to the toilet. Because, of course, when you're sitting on the toilet, you want to look out the window, don't you, for those few minutes? <laughs> I guess so. Well, basically, Tim, I think what you're saying, and I I would agree with the Logitech uh, controller and uh, the Spartan, the Spartan interior, uh, which is a kind word for it. We're talking about a very low-budget production. And again, we have to go back to Stockton Rush's statement, safety is a waste, and perhaps comfort is a waste. The other uh, submersibles that I've seen, for example, uh, the Woods Hall Observatory and James Cameron's, uh, they didn't seem to be as uh, uncomfortable as Spartan as this one. So I think the whole thing was a commercial enterprise using Minimax equations, you know, put the minimum amount of money in to try to get the max- maximum of profit out, and it failed. And so, again, he was told that he should have the craft tested by an independent organization, and he refused to do that. Probably because it would have failed. Probably. Uh, well, that's, that's what I call criminal negligence, actually. And At first, no one knew what had happened. But you know what? The U.S. Navy knew right away. And they let this horse and pony show go on, this melodrama, you know, cranking up hope and selling a lot of newspapers and hyping up a 24-hour news cycle. And I think there were political reasons for it because in the middle of all this, what was happening? John Durham was testifying before Congress on the uh, investigation into uh, Russia collusion, and he shot it down as a hoax. The Congress was investigating Hunter Biden and the emails that they found they have found and proven to be true. They were uh, squawking in Washington about the stonewalling of the FBI, refusing 
to give up the, uh, the Form 1053 uh, that they've had since uh, 2019, again, relating to the Hunter Biden uh, corruption. So I believe, and Richard and I had a conversation earlier in the week. He was complaining, why? Why is the State Department refusing to give U.S. Navy assets to search? Why is, why is the government not helping in every way possible? I think we have our answer. They wanted to keep this melodrama going to keep public attention all on Titan, all on the possibility that these poor people were down at the bottom of the ocean tapping, uh, rapping, tapping at the chamber door. And it's a great disservice to the victims and to the world public. Also, a couple more points there. Yeah. Uh, there was the issue of the $6.8 billion accounting error uh, in, in connection with uh, sending money funds to the Ukraine. Oh, yeah. Very good point. Good point. They went, oops, oh, we found $6.8 million that now we can send to Billion. Ukraine. Billion. Billion. Yeah. <laughs> staggering. It's staggering. So news is being manipulated for political purposes, and that answers the question. Richard was really irate and adamant in saying, why is the State Department blocking it? Why is the government not giving every possible resource? There are people down there possibly alive. And then the whole story about the tapping sounds to me to be totally hokey. There, there probably wasn't any tapping. You know, I didn't hear the U.S. Navy saying we hear tapping every half hour. That's the story. They heard as if banging on the side of the, of the, the console. It's clear that multiple, I think multiple sources that the, the implosion was detected by the support ship above, um, by the Coast Guard, and also by those guys with their hydrophones listening. Yes, the United States Navy. In exactly. Boston and, and in Virginia, they heard it too. Yeah. The, these these explosions sometimes it's uh, an intentional explosion, like an explosive that is set in the water to test the hull. When the USS Thresher, which I'll speak to the uh, to about in a moment, 60 years ago, the nuclear submarine Thresher was lost off the coast of Massachusetts, um, generally the same area of the North Atlantic. But when the Thresher was down in the Caribbean, they were doing stress testing, which was basically subjecting it to depth charges to see uh, if they could spring a leak while in shallow waters. And these detonations that were happening in the Caribbean, they were being picked up in Virginia and in Boston because the uh, SOSU, the uh, underwater surveillance system that the U.S. Navy has, can hear right across the Atlantic Ocean. The Navy technicians in Virginia could hear the propellers of Russian submarines crossing in and out of the Straits of Gibraltar. And it got so sensitive that they could actually identify which uh, submarines they were, as well as every surface ship. They could tell, the, it's almost like a fingerprint. The propeller frequency is almost like a fingerprint for each vessel. And the United States Navy could track all of these vessels on the Atlantic and the Pacific and identify which one was which by the frequency of the propeller sounds that they were being, they were being picked up by this incredible network 
of hydrophones that have been uh, laying out, stretched out across the entire length of the Atlantic and the Pacific Ocean. So they knew that day, and yet they kept the information secret. There's a humanitarian angle as well, Robert, as well, and that is the if they're really concerned about lives being lost, then they're being very selective which lives are being lost. For example, not so very long ago, there was a, a refugee ship that was being towed by a coast guard in Greece. And it capsized because B was wrong or, or the towing vessel took the wrong course or maybe it was just pure bad luck. But there was something along the lines of 500 refugees feared dead. And that capsized the uh, accident. That was, that was only... Um, it was only, I think, less than a week ago. So that's hardly in the news at all. But these, these rich guys down below, this was the center of attention, the focus for the world. What it really reminds me of as well is, without sort of getting too conspiratorial, but it really reminds me of uh, Apollo 13 as well. And, uh, you know, that was a mission which... Maybe it was a genuine you know, malfunction. Maybe it, it really was a genuine rescue mission. Maybe it was you know, a, a wonderful story that NASA and, and all the ground crews and everybody worked through you know, ingenuity and, and patience and you know, working 24-7 to find solutions of how to get these astronauts home. Maybe, maybe the whole thing is an absolute genuine story. But my question is, what was going on in 1970, in April, at the same time? You know, there were wars going on. There were 30,000 U.S. troops being pushed into, um, into the war. The, the war was expanding at that time. Uh, you know, so again, I think, I really do think that this... Oh, yes, Tim, that's very, very insightful of you. Now I'm going back. I think, yes, uh, Nixon was cranking up the war, but yes. he was also beginning the secret bombing of Cambodia. Exactly. The carpet bombing, the B-52 carpet bombings, yes. So uh, this is uh, called uh, wagging the dog, I think is the modern term for it. The other That's... thing that I object to is the emotional distress that the mass media and the government, if they were quashing this information, they won. You know, one hour and 45 minutes into the dive, the U.S. Navy heard the implosion. And that information was not released for another five days. So they kept up this mass media melodrama, the Mockingbird Press, the Mockingbird News, just kept harping and keeping everybody on tenterhooks. And huge distress. If you, if you read, or as I did, any of the Twitter uh, comments, people... We're losing sleep. They, uh, they were really distraught because there is this unique thing in the American, and it's particularly the American psyche, but in the world psyche, is identification. You know, you, we talk about the loss of what, scores of people in, in that mishap in towing the, the rescue vessel. And that's mass death. But when it involves five people clinging to life. There's something about identification uh, of each individual with the individual, and that is being exploited. 
just like the Apollo, the Apollo 13 incident. Well, if you talk to Richard and to me, uh, we don't believe that it was an accident. Richard and I both believe that they, they do go through sacrificial rituals and that uh, sometimes uh, for whatever perverse reason, either a diabolical spiritual idea, anti-spiritual idea, I would call it, uh, human sacrifice is as old as mankind and some of these uh, secret societies uh, still believe that they'll derive more power by sacrificing human beings on an individual level or on a mass, mass scale. But I really object to what the mass media did for a whole week, keeping people, you know, distraught. Some of the comments that I was uh, reading, you know, about praying and uh, people, you know, not being able to sleep and crying for the victims. The U.S. Navy knew one minute, one hour and 45 minutes into the dive that an implosion had occurred. So it's a great disservice how the government is using mass media to manipulate human emotions and crank them up and bring them down, you know, like turn up the flame and then bring it down and turn it up again. Like the, you can follow it in the reportage. We didn't hear anything about banging on the on the walls every half hour until three days later. So again, to give people false hope that they might still be alive and what a terrible situation that would have been. I myself, you know, when I heard about the banging, you know, I started thinking about uh, what a terrible thing it would be to be there in the cold and the dark. And, you know, what would you be using? A shoe to slam on the side? And how would you know that it was half an hour? There was something really fishy about the whole story. But yet, it had its effect, even on me. And um, I can only imagine what it did to so many more millions and millions of people around the world who were glued to their television sets, waiting for the next item of, of news, when they already knew the story. James Cameron knew it. He said, I felt it in my bones. I knew what happened the moment that I got the word. Back to you, Tim. So, from my, my perspective, I, I think that as soon as I heard that there was a loss of contact, then I have to say that I think I, you know, the, the game was up at that point, in my opinion, because you're talking 40 atmospheres, 40 times our atmosphere. That's a huge amount of pressure. You know, there's no light down there. If you don't have power, how do you get up? Okay, there's, there's, you can maybe release ballast. But, uh, you know, even that hasn't, you know, there are various mechanisms on, on other stubs and submersibles. For example, you know, one submersible I was reading about has ballast. So the idea is that, oh, we're getting now to the bottom of the hour. Uh, or even at yeah, the bottom of the hour, excuse me. So, for example, there are ways of releasing ballast so that you know you've got the weight, and therefore the buoyancy will just bring you up naturally. Um, so, some people use electromagnets. So, when the, the if, even if the electricity fails, for example, then the ballast is the magnets fail, and therefore the electromagnets fail, and therefore the the ballast drops off and the sub comes up. Other ones use uh, a metal cord that corrodes after 12 hours of being underwater, for example. So after 12 hours, the ballast will fall off and the sub comes up. But this one had absolutely nothing. 
nothing like this. Right. Well, okay. after the break, after the break, I'm I'm going to uh, correct that calculation I worked all week uh, to make my case that um, this was human error. But the uh, the magnitude of the forces that uh, were acting on this uh, submarine uh, are borderline astronomical. So after the break, we're going to do some number crunching and. Uh, okay, Robert. Thank you. Okay. I'll take us out. Uh, you're listening to the other side of midnight. Our guest, Robert Morningstar and Timothy Saunders. And we'll be right back after the break. TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Search the archives. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Membership costs $9.95 a month. 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. to the other side of midnight. I'm your host, Keith Morgan, for tonight. Uh, Richard's internet had gone out, so you guys are coming in late. And uh, we're having a conversation about Titan and the Titanic, and it's getting pretty good here. I'm going to come back to our guests, uh, and we're going to pick up where we left off. Robert, Tim. Robert, tell us about your human error theory. Okay. I the reports, but I'd, I'd, I'd love to hear what your, your Okay. Thoughts. Well, it goes like this. The, the, the target depth was 12,000 feet. And the estimated time to get down there was three hours. 
and he blew the thing blew up after an hour and 45 minutes so i got on my calculator and uh, i started doing some numbers and what emerged was that one hour and 45 minutes is 105 minutes three hours is 180 minutes so if you divide 105 by 180 what you get is 0.583333 ad infinitum if you multiply that times 12,000 the target depth the depth at which she should have been after one hour and 45 minutes was 7,000 feet BSL below sea level but he was actually at 10,000 feet below sea level so it says to me that Mr. Rush rushed the descent and as a result he put extreme pressures on the hull that perhaps the hull of the Titan could have taken the pressure if it was gradually built up but there's a really great difference between 7,000 feet and 10,000 feet so I think that he he rushed the descent now regarding the pressure um, I've calculated that as well you said 40 atmospheres actually at um, 3,048 meters which is actually 10,000 feet the pressure is 294.99 that's so 295 atmospheres are what actually imploded the craft and physiologists and doctors have said that the catastrophe happened so fast that the brain didn't even have time to register the pain because when 295 atmospheres crushes a human body in the ocean it just turns the body into liquid with a couple of uh, fragments of calcium inside so they just became one with mother ocean poof like an oil slick inside the container or outside the container once it blew so again i would point you to the article that i wrote from last sunday through today i wrote it i updated it today another fake story that i would like to uh, caution people about Another fake story came out yesterday that photographs of the debris fields uh, were being shown. And that's fake because no photographs of the debris field have been released. So beware of fake news. All they want to do is hijack. All they want to do is hijack your attention and maintain it. Steal your perceptions. So take everything with a grain of salt so 295 atmospheres extinguished those lives in a microsecond taking us back to the sinking of the uss thresher which is was a much sturdier craft and uh, it descended its limit was 1300 feet but it had a mishap in that something happened possibly an electrical failure or loss of propulsion is, is most likely for some reason. And they tried to do a, an emergency blow. Uh, they tried to uh, empty the water from the ballast tanks very quickly. And what uh, transpired was they used um, 
pressurized air uh, to force the water out. But when the air was uh, infused into the ballast tanks, they opened what is called seacocks or vents. The seacocks were opened, but the air was so cold that it created ice. And so the ice formed on the seacocks and they were unable to close them afterwards. So the vessel filled up quickly with water and uh, went into a, uh, a plunge and the thresher also as, uh, as heavy, as dense, as well made as it was by General Dynamics in Connecticut, uh, blew up, imploded, just like popping a balloon. I've actually been on uh, nuclear submarines twice. They are quite formidable, and, but they are actually quite small inside. They're huge on the outside. But when you get inside, it's a very tight, very tight space. And I've been told, see, I, I had a wonderful friendship uh, with my late friend, Robert O. Anderson. He was a master electrician, nuclear submarine master electrician. He told me some amazing stories about being on the sister ship of the Thresher. It's called the, the Tullaby. And he said that when they really plunged into the depths, that he could feel the walls of the submarine tightening up. He had his foot in a certain position as it went down, and he felt the wall come in and start to pinch his, his foot. And that another one is that the air inside the submarine gets compressed and is so dense that it's like moving through jelly. A lot of things that we don't know about, they, they move in slow motion because the air is compressed so, so densely that it almost becomes like uh, being in a swimming pool. So it's very, very hazardous duty. To well, be, but as, uh, yeah. very quickly, I'm, I'm really curious about your calculation of 295 atmospheres against my 40 atmospheres. What, what numbers are you using? I'm using uh, 10,000 feet converted into meters. Mm-hmm. which comes out to 3,048 meters, and then a conversion on the internet of converting meters of water into physical atmospheres. I can send you the link through the chat right here, and that's what I'm reading uh, now. Just curious to why we're so, so you know, black and white with this, the same, num- same principle. I mean, for me, 100 meters is one atmosphere, so 4,000 meters is... 40 atmospheres. Oh, I don't think I don't think it's, uh, it's I don't think it's a summation. I think that there's um, a geometric uh, increase in the in the pressure. Well, look, I just put the link in there, and you can. Right, I'll, the, I'll, I'll give you the other link as well. Because working with the two of them, uh, you'll see you come up with a very uh, feet to meters. Hey guys, uh, we, yeah. we have a caller, Maria. Uh, she has a question. Would you like to take it? Sure. Okay, let me bring on Maria. Hi, Maria. Hi. Hello. Hi. You can ask your question now. Okay, so I don't know a lot about this. I just heard like a couple snippets. How did, was, I know the thing was being controlled by a game control, but I'm going to assume there was a sort of mission control up there. How did the mission control 
lose control of the mission. Well, I think that once the captain takes over the ship, he is the principal authority, and the captain of the ship is the owner of the company. So I don't think anyone was going to tell him what to do, especially given his statements. He seems to have been a very headstrong person and uh, just focused on profit and uh, hubris. I think hubris is uh, what led to his downfall. So mission control, as you're describing it, was just a monitoring station on the surface in communication with with the Titan. But as far as how to maneuver the ship, how slowly or how quickly to descend, that was totally up to Captain Rush. And he has what type of background? He has what type of educational background? He's a scientist? I I would have to look into that. Uh, Let me see. What? Why would he decide fasting? I think he was a businessman who made a lot of money and then decided to get into that venture. But Maria, I'd like to ask you a question. Um, Sure. How did you get interested in the story and uh, did you stay with it? Are you one of the people that I described who was just swept up by the, by the idea of the five people in, in distress? Did you no, feel I didn't the react to that. I, I, no, I didn't react to that at all. Um, my friend put a post on Facebook, would you do this? And they're down there and everybody should pray for them. That's the only, if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't even know. So no, I wasn't swept up at all. Oh, what was it that he asked you to do? To put the uh, post on Facebook? Prayers. Prayers, yes. Well, that's what I was talking about. They swept up half the world into this. I know. And listen, here's what I think. I think the banging, the the, the BS, you know, uh, false flag narrative psyop that they were banging on the side of their walls and it was three days later, the, yeah. it's total psyop. And this is what people not, aren't even going to see. That's why I asked you the question, to bring this out. They were oh. manipulating human emotions on a global scale and distressing people when they already knew the outcome. And knew they were dead. Crazy, you know? Yeah, they, we, they knew they were dead. The U.S. Navy knew it. One hour so and 45 if, minutes to the dive. If they were doing this, they were just setting up another false flaggy psyop thing. Because the thing is, if you know they're dead and you're soliciting people to get, you know, besides themselves, uh, inconsolable, flipping out, and all the reactions that people have, then you're doing it to master manipulate the masses. And to me, that's a false flag. There might not have even been four people down there, just like there weren't people in, well, there were people in the buildings on 9-11, but there weren't even planes. There was just a whole bunch of shit that they set up and did in their photoshops of the day, and now mm-hmm. they're doing it again. Yeah. As a matter of fact, talking about Photoshop, if you go to the article, the number one item in my, in my items, which is the article that I spent a week on, 
Uh, you go down to the bottom, you'll see an illustration that came out in an animation in TikTok uh, about how it blew up, you know, totally imaginary. They even put a flash of light when the whole thing was just in total darkness. Oh, my God. Explosion, you know. So, again, all of these things are mass manipulation. Now, now you use the word that I object to, which is manipulating masses, because I I despise the adoption of Marxist-Leninist terminology like the masses, the proletariat, um, and there's a third no, word. No, I, 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 I didn't even know any of this was happening. Just, I just think it's really horrible when people people yeah. get this distressed. Right. And they know it's a lie. Right, right. Well, I just wanted to say this about uh, neurolinguistics. The masses, the collective, and the proletariat. And I say... I'm not a member of the masses. I'm a member of the public. I'm not a member of the collective. I'm a member of the union. I'm not a proletarian. I'm a citizen. Those, I'm very particular about using those, those words and avoiding those others. But a lot of people, I don't, I don't know how to say it without offending you. I'm not using, trying to intentionally use no, I, Marxist, you know. I'm just taking the opportunity to point that out uh, to the public. Maria, I have a question for you. Do you mind? Sure. Sure. Okay, so I don't know if this is a false flag. A false flag would show a planned intent to, you know, think, think the submersible and, and let it implode. I think, I, I think it may be more riding on taking advantage of a, uh, of a disaster and focusing the media and the people's attention on this while something else is going on, sleight of hand. If, the, if that is the case, and I don't want to that's, put words in uh, that. That's the obvious point at this point, which probably a lot of people don't know even that much, that the, the banging went on well, allegedly days after they had already been imploded. Um, but the thing is, if they took this uh, a transaction of this enormity, and did what they did and lied and asked everybody for their prayers and their support and all that stuff. It means, or it tells me, that this thing might be a lot more planned than we are even imagining. Because who in their right mind takes their ship and over-descends it, I mean, or rapidly descends it? When you're, when you're submersing uh, a machine in atmospheres, downward. Everybody knows. Everybody knows you can't go faster than uh, the, the speed you're supposed to go, the sense of speed, because it'll cause the thing to implode. And it's the same is true in, in, in the reverse. Like you can't, as a diver, you can't come up fast so you get the bend. You cannot go up fast. You cannot get, go up slow. You, I mean, you can't go up faster and you can't go up down faster than you'd like to because it's going to be uh, cute and, and fun that you beat the records. You can't beat mass. This is a I, mathematical I, I, certainty I, that he knew he couldn't have. And he, he's just a captain or does he have a degree in 
geology? Does he have a, a degree in quantum physics? You're going to tell me you're just going to, that he'd be certified to go submersing down into the ocean without having some type of scientific degree? Does it make sense? The thing is that he went down with, with the submersible, so whether he had a diploma rolled up uh, or not, he's still one of the victims. So my, my question to you is, if this is sleight of hand, what do you think has really been going on in the last week in the world? There's so many, there's so many like narratives of what's happening now. There's this thing about all the, all the countries of, all the continents and all the countries are all mobilizing for war. That's one part. The other part is what really happened with all those so fires along the continent. So there's so many things going on right now. Maybe this is just yet another thing to throw on the fire of distressed people. Well, you know, you were very insightful because I'll tell you something very big that was happening during this period of time. Uh, masses of U.S. troops were being deployed across the United States and mobilized. Uh, passengers, hundreds of airline passengers were kicked off their airliners and soldiers were put on them to fly them to Europe. Because between June 12th and June 24th, the largest air, military air exercises, joint exercises are being conducted in Germany and Poland by NATO. Let me stop Over you right there. Two, Let me stop you right there. Go ahead. Let me keep your thoughts. Let me stop you right there. If that's what's going on, they always have uh, a drill the day before, a massive PSYOP or a massive false flag, and everybody's getting very jittery about all this mobilization, this mass mobilization that's going on of armies and, and um, all, all the stuff you need for running a war. So... If they're running a drill, that's something to be concerned about because they ran a 9-11 drill the day before or something like that. All I know is there was nine scramblers or all of our scramblers were in Canada on an alleged drill. And there was a drill also run. And there's always a drill run before they drop a false flag. Can you tell us what you mean by scramblers? You you were a scrambler and you were in Canada. Please explain that. No, I'm talking about like Air Force scramblers. Our oh, Air yes, Force yes. scramblers that could have allegedly um, thwarted the planes being turned into missiles. Those scramblers were conveniently in Canada that day. You're right. You know what? McGuire Air Force Base in New Jersey is only 90 miles away from the World Trade Centers. And they had no aircraft to try to intercept. And the interceptors that they did call came from Rhode Island, which took them uh, an hour and a half to get here. So I think you're on the right track. There you go. So this is reminding me of that. Let me finish this report about what's been going on since June 12th. Yeah, go on with what you're saying. Sorry. Yeah. um, Over 10,000 troops uh, are involved in this NATO exercise, 250 airplanes, 4,000 ground crew, practicing war against Russia. And my main concern is that Joe Biden, that's my name for Joe Biden, <laughs> is trying to get us 
war with Russia to save his neck. And that is what we all have to work against. We have to avoid this. It's a terrible, terrible thing. And they're trying to goad Putin into excesses. Anybody who knows... Yeah, that's, the, that's the other thing. That's the other thing. An 80 or 90-year-old man with cancer, he wants to go to war. That's not the time men want to go to war. It's when they're in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, they want to take over the world. I, it's just weird that they're it's saying that he, Obviously, he's not the person who's calling the shots. You know, he's An 80-year-old man with cancer wants to go to war. That's not, it's like if a woman has to give birth, but she kind of hates her husband, and he's there in, in the theater. And, you know, she always fights with him because he's an idiot, right? That's not the time she's actually going to pick a fight that he's an idiot because she's way too busy giving birth. Do you feel what I'm saying? So what I'm saying is an 80-year-old man with cancer, stage four, all of a sudden he wants to obliterate Ukraine? It doesn't make any sense. He wants to obliterate Russia, and that's the plan. But uh, the fact is, it's a very complex geopolitical scheme that's going on there. We discovered uh, information last year that the real target was Germany. The United States economy is uh, is in such uh, upheaval, and the dollar is dying. And they planned to fill the coffers or bolster the coffers of the United States Treasury by forcing Germany to become totally dependent on us. This was a Rand Corporation white paper that came out, was written in January, a month before the invasion of Ukraine. And it stated explicitly, Russia is not the enemy, it's actually Germany because Germany's industrial power is the powerhouse of the European economy. And they calculated that by sabotaging the relationship between Russia and uh, Germany, which was very cozy. They were getting oil and natural gas at a very cheap price from Russia, that they would hamstring the German economy and make Germany and Europe totally dependent on us. And they calculated, the Rand Corporation calculated, that it would bring in $9 trillion into the um, U.S. Treasury. So this is is where real wars are waged on uh, balance sheets. Well, that's the thing. War, both, you know, both sides, you know, don't those people always invest on both sides? Because they're going to make money on both sides. So when people need money, all of a sudden, you know, they do create a war. Because that's it's right. one of the biggest cash generating things on this planet. You know, people yeah, talk about it. It has a name in American foreign policy, perpetual warfare um, policies. Vietnam, the Gulf Wars, one and two, Afghanistan. The other thing is this. Ever since World War II, the president of the United States has been delegated uh, something called the War Powers. War Powers Act was passed. And in order to retain those powers, they had to keep making up new wars. So there was the Cold War, the Korean War. There is the war against... uh, the war against crime, the war against drugs, the war against terror. Uh, just get ready for the war against aliens because that's the other big psyop that is being run right now, the UFO blitz. You know, the yeah. UFO disclosure blitz. That we're I know, getting. the disclosure is like July 21st. What's that? 
disclosure is going to be on July 21st. Oh, yeah. Well, I thought it might, they might just play it according to the script that they wrote back in the 1990s, uh, Independence Day. You know, that's called predictive programming. <laughs> but uh, Maria, thank you very much for your question. We're going to go back to our uh, co-host, and I'm going to turn it back to Tim for two minutes from the break. But I really appreciate your calling in, and uh, we hope you'll call in again. Have a good evening. Okay, guys. Uh, we're like two minutes out from the uh top of the hour and we have another caller steven from clearwater but if steven okay. can hold on till we come back after the break we'll bring him in okay okay yeah sure so i'm going to take us out a little early okay and uh we'll come back after that you're listening to the other side of midnight and our guests are timothy saunders and robert morningstar We'll be right back after the break. If you're in the hyperdimensional, one thing you'll find is essential is our club. 19.5. It's a hyperdimensional storage case. Treasure trove of outer space, our club, 19.5. All the data we've accumulated, the find it, titled and collated. Why don't you just drop on by and give our club a try? Hyperdimensional, you'll find our credentials are fine. Club 19.5. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com.
welcome back to the other side of midnight. I we had a good conversation there. Maria gave us some things to to talk about. Uh, right now we've got Stephen on the line, and Steve has a question. I'm going to bring him on, and uh, he can talk to our guest. Uh, Steve, you there? Yes, I'm right here. Yeah, I just wanted to make the mm-hmm. comment of this is rather unusual. Oh, I thought sorry. the way people reacted. I'm sorry, Stephen. Um, Hold on. Engineering error. Okay, okay. Stephen, you here. By yeah. the way, Keith, you're doing an excellent job tonight. Uh, thank you. Okay, so um, we have uh, Robert and and Timothy. Uh, you have a you had a question. You would you would, yeah. or you were telling me something. Go ahead. You know, talking about the psychological effect on this and how the world's consciousness was all on on the on the, thinking about these people. When they were rescued, or I mean, when when they were found out that the um, um, that they had died from an implosion, everybody you'd think would be sad because everyone would realize they were dead. There was no more hope of reviving them. But everybody I knew was extremely relieved and happy because they said, "Oh, well, thank God they didn't suffer." And it was just a, to me a very strange reaction to to a rescue mission that when they were found dead, or when they were determined to be dead, everybody was happy, not unhappy. And another thing is, isn't it kind of strange that the name of the ship that they were examining was Titanic, and the name of the submersible was Titan, the first you know, five letters? And if you combine the word Titan, Titan, with the name of the submersible, with the name Atlantic, where this all happened, it comes out Titanic. Well, it was supposed yes. to be a, a tour ship to the Titanic. Right. So I, yeah. Right. So but you know what? I, I think Steve is right. There is there is a deeper connection. The Titanic was named after a vessel that was described in 1898 as having been the biggest uh, ship in the world and uh, an unsinkable, and that. It was lost in the Atlantic, and the the, the book was called the uh, the sinking of the Titan. So Titanic itself was named after a, an imaginary vessel, uh, a fictional vessel, vessel called Titan. So I don't know why these what these people had in mind to name it after the progenitor of the the, the name Titanic. So I think you're you're seeing into some kind of ritual that Richard uh, often speaks about uh, orbits around these events. There is some kind of numerological and neurolinguistic ritual aspect. And I think that, Stephen, uh, you've, uh, you've honed in on one of them. While, uh, while we're here, I want to point out one of the articles that I included in my items, and it's called Accidents or Sabotage Against SETI. Why was the Titanic-bound sub destroyed? It's by Yoishi Shimatsu. Long article, but I'm just going to read you a couple of paragraphs to bring in this extraterrestrial SETI aspect uh, to the floor. I'm going to skip the introduction and just read to you paragraphs. A competent research team aboard. It says, 
A preliminary study of this unfortunate accident begins with the roles of the participants, the submersible's designer, operator, and pilot, Stockton Rush, French underwater explorer, Henri Najolet, who on earlier probes with drones has recovered a trove of artifacts from that sunken ship. Hamish Harding, a British national who owns a Dubai-based aircraft leasing firm and an amateur adventurer who notably accompanied astronaut Buzz Aldrin to the South Pole. And the father and son team, Shazada Dawood, a wealthy Palestinian, excuse me, a wealthy Pakistani British business executive and his son, Suleiman. One might assume that the millionaire Dawood to have been the last and least among this rather impressive exploration group, but one of his roles has been kept largely out of the news reports. His role on the board of trustees for the SETI Institute, the acronym stands for the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Given the assets of those on this brief list, it is fair to assert that the news media has been slack in reporting failed, perhaps deliberately, to take the right angle on this mystery and possibly worse, complicit in a major cover-up of this rather intriguing disaster, which challenges the secular atheist and materialist establishment, which dares not raise the question that has intrigued humanity's greatest thinkers over the millennial, the question of the existence of an afterlife, or phrased differently, the journey of the human soul after death. That issue, by extension, points to the matter of God or deities or other entities of pure spirit, including angels and demons. Is there a connection between matter, mind, and spirit? Window to the afterlife. Perhaps the loss of the ocean's gate opens the doorway into the heart of the matter. Whatever did happen to the 2,000-plus passengers aboard the Titanic who went down with the ship, one claim of a witness account of the escape of the souls, a.k.a. minds of the doomed passengers. The science-based narrative of the daughter of W.T. Stead, a notable British investigative journalist, comes into focus in regard to these questions. If indeed telepathic communication with the other side proves valid, as it seems to do in the W.T. Stead narrative, note here, as a science-based journalist, I am a skeptic, of claims related to easy karma, but can admit that many post-life acts accounts have the ring of truth. Certainly, mere journalists and lab-stuck physicists have no authority to dump the majority of humanity's experiential connection with the afterlife into the trash bin. For that would be misguided secular hubris. So folks, I, I highly recommend this, and this is something that has just come to my attention uh, recently as I was preparing for the program that the Pakistani billionaire Shahzada Dawood was on the board of directors of the SETI Institute. So perhaps, uh, Stephen, you might want to comment on that. Well, it's hard to add to that, but I, 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 the, there's just so many things that, about this that just seemed very very strange i i don't know i can't really put my my foot on it but i think there's a lot of things that i'm i'm going to work on this during this week because i have another thing i have an idea on 
that might might be. Uh, I'll I'll contact you by email because I don't want to say it over the air because it involves people's names. Okay. Well, thanks again yeah. for the call. Very good. Thank good you, question. Stephen. I'll okay. You thank you for thank you. So, Stephen, I was just going to say just to round off, you're talking about the name Titan, Titanic, and so on. While you guys were talking, I just picked this up off the internet from Wikipedia, if that's believable or not. But um, it says the Titans were the former gods, the generation of gods preceding the Olympians. That's a couple of names you've already mentioned. They were overthrown as part of the Greek secession myth, which tells how Cronos seized power from his father Uranus and ruled the cosmos with his fellow Titans before being turned in turn defeated and replaced as the ruling pantheon of gods by Zeus and the Olympians in a 10-year war called the Titanomachy. Uh, as a result of this war, the vanquished Titans were banished from the upper world and held imprisoned under guard in Tartarius, which is quite interesting, Robert, although apparently some Titans were allowed to remain free. In here, we have a lot of symbology. We have a lot of frankly, weird shit going on, <laughs> even with the Titanic, you know, how the, some of the uh, most wealthy guests um, disembarked before the transatlantic crossing as if they knew the fate of what was going to happen. And they were in favor of the Federal Reserve, the centralized banking system. And Mr. Astor, who at that point was the richest guy on the planet, um, owning about 40% of all mortgages at that point or underwriting them, he was left on the Titanic to go down to the bottom. So right. 1913 was the Titanic, 1914 was World War Part One. So there's a lot of weird shit going on, I have to say. Weird shit is a fairly, is, is actually a technical term. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Yeah. Well, you know, Tim, you, you uh, again, this mythology is this mythology is very important because, as I understand it, the Titans were anti-human, and the one that we call Kronos was actually Saturn. And the story is that Kronos was uh, told that that um, there would be a coming god that would uh, would usurp him, usurp his throne. So he was waiting uh, for the birth. And as each child came forth, he would eat it. He would consume it, hoping to to get the one who was going to overthrow him. And so the mother of Zeus, knowing that Cronus was doing this horrible, heinous deed, took a stone and she put it between her legs. And when uh, the birth of Zeus uh, was imminent, she said, oh, oh, here, oh, here, here it is. And she she put the stone and Cronus swallowed the stone and she bore Zeus and raised him in secret. And when Zeus came of age, he was able to do battle and do war with the Titans and defeat them. Now the earliest telling of this story is uh, not in Herodotus, but the oldest uh, piece of Greek literature is called Hesiod's Theogony. And this tells the detailed story of the battle between the Olympians and the Titans. Now, the interesting thing about this is I read this in college, and I have never read a more accurate description 
of a nuclear explosion than you will read in Hesiod's Theogony. When Zeus lets go his lightning bolts and his thunderbolts, what is described is a total devastation of the Titans through a nuclear explosion. And of course, tomorrow, Richard's guests are going to be Mark Carlotto and Dr. John Brandenburg. And I may uh, chip in with some things about UFOs. But Dr. Brandenburg wrote a book called Death on Mars. And he discovered that Mars was destroyed ultimately in nuclear holocaust. And that the entire surface of Mars is uh, covered by a radioactive isotope, xenon-29, which is only produced, it's not in nature, it's only produced in the aftermath of nuclear explosions. So be sure to tune in tomorrow for more details on that. But back to you, Tim, and this uh, story of the Titans and the underworld, right? Who Who was in the underworld? Hades? Pluto? Well, go ahead. I think you have a far better memory than, than I do about this, but uh, I was just referencing this. I mean, you're talking about um, there's a there's a, there's a we're, we're talking about sacrifice. We're talking about oh my god, I didn't switch that one off. We're talking about sacrifice. We're talking about um, you know these organizations choosing certain numbers. Um, the ceremony of repeating sort of cyclic uh, events on on certain days of the year. Um, I'm being very vague at the moment. You can chip in at any point. But what I'm talking about is the really is is how we were talking about earlier Apollo 13, and I said that this may well have been a genuine incident. And you said, well, actually, you think there was more to it than that. What I'm asking is, is is there any date association? Is there any any symbology um, with this Titan event? Uh, Maria was asking earlier, is, is it a false flag? And I I, I probably don't necessarily support yes. that. That would show you know pre-intent of the whole sinking and everything, the whole implosion and everything. But I would say rather than a false flag, I would say that sure this event occurred and by the look of things it was fairly probable oh my goodness you know late yeah you have just you just tripped a very important memory of course listen the ship went down titan went down on june 20th that's as close as you can get to the summer solstice it is pretty close as anyone can get now mm-hmm. here's another thing the ancient druids are said to have sacrificed um, royalty at uh, the time at the summer solstice and other high holy days and that it involved a triple sacrifice to Tyrannus uh, Isus and to Tetis and these correspond to Jupiter, Mars and I believe Saturn but one of the interesting things about this sacrifice was that they would uh, one involved the cutting of the throat and smashing of the head but the third one involved drowning the victim and Mm. this is what is the explanation 
for the um, for the Bogman that was found in England uh, many many years ago, you know, 25 years ago, they were Bogman, the yeah. guy that came up as, as like a mummy, as fresh as, as, fresh as a sort of a, a leather handbag after thousands of years. Oh my goodness! One of the most shocking experiences I, I ever had was being at the British Museum back in 1998. And I was taking video and I was backing up on, on one subject that I wanted to get a wider angle. I bumped into something and I turned around and there he was in this case. And I was able to take my camera and I put it on the glass case and I ran it over the entire thing and I recorded the entire body of uh, the bog man. Incredible. Because I think he was, he was I would digress, but I think he was, he was a sacrifice. He was feared, I believe. He was speared and he was drowned. Yeah. Yeah, spearing, stabbing. There was a stabbing and there are three other aspects to it because um, the the three gods demanded the sacrifice each in this particular way. And after they did the first two, the final one was to sink the victim in a pool, a sacred pool, and uh, offer him to the, uh, the god of the waters. So... I think we're doing some really good detective work here tonight, folks. It's uh, intuitive, intuitive detective work. I mean, this is what I call cross-pollination of information. When um, two, three, four bright minds get together and share, you know, information, it's, uh, that's why I call it cross-pollination of information. And you come out with uh, something that is, uh, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. So I think we're, we're homing in on, on something really deep here. No pun intended. But the other part is this connection between Dawood and Seti. I was going to say that that's that's quite a find. I, I didn't expect that. Neither did I. And also with the, the recent NASA press conference that went on for four hours, but I'll never get those four hours back of my life. But it, they, the fact they did it, Acknowledge yes. that, in my opinion, UFOs do not exist. No, not my opinion. In, it, it seems that my opinion about NASA is UFOs do not exist, but UA, UAPs, according to their definition, may potentially exist. Yeah, well, I have a different pronunciation for that, that uh, neo Marxist jargon. I, I pronounce it UAPs. Like <laughs> 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 I said, one of my favorite sayings, my quips, is that. <clears throat> The first trick of science was to convince you that you descended from a monkey so that when they treat you like a monkey, you won't complain. So I think, again, that's a psyop. They expect us to change our vocabulary, to make it respectable by calling flying saucers, UFOs, UAPs. Give me a break, man. So, you know, <laughs> compliance is complicity, and I'm not going to go in that direction. I know it irritates you ape experts like Stephen Bassett, you know, he's happy to accept the new term because it's very tactful, it's very diplomatic. And then they're saying, oh, well, we, we have 144 cases of UAPs since 2005. And I said, oh, yeah, well, what about the 13,000 cases you had since 1940 that are in the Blue Book files? Again, that old axiom, that old expression, give me a break. Yeah. Yeah. Back to you, Tim. We can 
true. And uh, who are you going to sue now that the CEO has uh, perished with the crew? Here's another interesting uh, report. Uh, ABC, an ABC reporter went down in, in a submersible uh, over a year ago. And uh, this report is part of, part of my extensive report on uh, Substack, uh, robertmorningstar.substack.com. It says, former ABC News science editor, Dr. Michael Gillen, detailed his experience in a submarine accident that occurred in 2000 while he was studying the underwater wreckage of the RMS Titanic, an accident that he said nearly cost him his life. He tweeted a video that showed a combination of actual footage from the accident and a computer-generated recreation of what it might have looked like to someone watching from the outside. Basically, was what happened is he went down in the submersible and they were exploring the the area near the propeller. And this fellow got fantastic videotape of the propeller, but they encountered some uh, undersea currents which wedged them between the propeller and the hull. And they had a hell of a time extricating themselves from it. They had to turn on the uh, propulsion system full power. And in the video, you can see chunks of debris some of it looks like stuff, um, rusted metal from Titanic as well as part of the sea bottom. And they were very lucky to uh, get out alive. I'd like to say that in the early days, uh, the first couple of days, everyone was wondering what could have happened. And some of the theories that uh, we had that it was that it could possibly have encountered, uh, been involved in a collision with an undersea object possibly an aquatic life form, a kraken, a giant squid, as in 20,000 leagues under the sea, or possibly a USO, undersea submarine object, which is basically what a UFO turns into when it flies into the ocean. And UFOs have been seen coming, coming out of the ocean into the skies and out of the skies into the ocean and if you read the article, I have links in there, video documentaries. One of them is uh, just entertainment. What if the Kraken was real? Dealing with uh, the actual washing up on, onto shores of giant squids. The story of the Kraken, the legend of the Kraken, came out of Scandinavia when one of the kings of Sweden detailed his encounter with a giant tentacled creature that uh, snatched up some of his men. So that's where the Kraken legend started. And the giant squid is a reality. It has been photographed. It's also been uh, found washed up on shores. And so what if the Kraken was real? So that's a, an entertaining little piece of um, information. Okay. Another thought was the possibility of a collision with a whale. So I wrote something called Bumping into the Right Whale at the Wrong Time. Okay, Robert. Um, yes, go ahead. We're at the bottom of the hour. Okay. So we're going to start this break. Okay. Okay. Uh, you're listening to the other side of midnight. We'll be right back after the break.
Side of midnight, and uh, whew, there's a lot of stuff going on. When the Titan lost communications, I kind of knew something had gone wrong because you don't really you lose communication that instantaneously, and that was one of the clues that said to me, um, "I think it had imploded." I told my wife that. Um, it was just a, a hunch based on the quick loss of communication and um, the design of how this was this craft actually looked. So that was my first impression. Um, I didn't like what I was feeling, but um, I felt for the people that were on board at the time. And Titanic just claimed another set of people. So... Let's get back to our guest, Richard. Richard's internet's still down, so he wasn't able to join us this time. So we're going to be finishing up the show with uh, Timothy and uh, Robert, and they've got more to talk about. So let's get back to Robert and Timothy. I'll let Timothy go first. Well, I was just going to say that we have kind of almost half an hour we can go in all different directions 
do you have a, some bullet points that you would like to to cover off? Or, or do you well, have yeah, a- well, you know, the mystery is over uh, to, to some extent. Uh, on what on the comment of uh, that Keith just made about the loss of communication, well, if there was a loss of communication prior to the implosion, I would say it's possible that there was an electrical malfunction which would have resulted in loss of propulsion and loss of control of the rate of descent. And that may explain why it sank, it was sinking so fast. I really can't imagine a, a really qualified pilot um, exceeding you know, the, the tolerances of the vessel intentionally, but the man's name was Rush and he, he made some really, really terrible comments. Another comment that he made besides that safety is a waste of time was that um, he didn't want to hire 50-year-old white guys. So that, be, that betrays a kind of a woke mentality and a woke attitude toward the whole thing, which is, to me, is very exploitative, you know, because it's saying he was cutting corners in safety, but also in experience. It's a very snide remark to say he didn't want to hire 50-year-old white guys. So what's the implication? You know, less qualified, younger people with less experience. So that's, uh, that's on him, and that was his choice. But what I'd like to say is that, uh, you know, all of us have been intrigued by undersea life. And I remember as a boy getting my first diving mask and my first fins and seeing Jacques Cousteau's wonderful film, The World Without Sun, and all of the marvelous creatures that he discovered in in the first, really, the diving saucer. And, of course, uh, for entertainment purposes, um, I have included in the article that I've been pointing to at robertmorningstar.substack.com, SOS, Titan is missing. Why no SOS? I've included some high-definition scenes from Walt Disney's uh, fabulous 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, specifically the battle against the giant squid and um, other entertainment. I have an article there. So... Jonathan Womack and I were going back and forth when I said, you know, it's possible that they had a collision with some submerged object. And Jonathan wrote back, uh, are you suggesting it was an aquatic animal? So I looked up uh, North Atlantic whales, and uh, it turns out that the right whale is a North North Atlantic uh, species. There are only 400 right whales left. So that was a possibility. The, the vessel itself looked, if you take a killer whale and turn it upside down, I think you get a silhouette that's very similar to the, um, to the Titan. But the most intriguing part is that this happened not so far away in the same region of the North Atlantic where a famous USO incident happened called the Shag Harbor USO. In 1967, Canadian citizens in Nova Scotia saw a bright light come out of the sky and crash into Shag Harbor. It floated for a few minutes 
with a, at first it made a brilliant light when it splashed. Then it stayed on the surface for a while, uh, illuminating the harbor. And then it sunk into the depths of the harbor. And when uh, local fishermen went out there, they thought it was an airplane crash and they were ready to go out there rescuing passengers. When they got out there, there the Shag Harbor uh, surface of the water was covered by some yellow scum. Uh, very unusual looking stuff that they'd never seen before. The Canadian Navy sent down divers and looking around, they found that there was something down there at the bottom, but they couldn't tell what it was. And they couldn't get into it, but they monitored it and they found that a few days later, another object came in to Shag Harbor underwater and went to the area where the original object was lying on the bottom. And then the two objects reanimated and both of them went out to sea completely underwater, detected by sonar and uh, the Canadian Navy. I'd also like to say something about that rumor that came about that we were all criticizing about the tapping, the tapping on the, on the, uh, that was heard, giving people hope there might be someone alive. That report was made by a Canadian Navy uh, aircraft flying over the area, uh, claiming that they had heard tapping every 30 minutes. Now, I don't know how the Canadian uh, P-3 airplane could detect noises in the underwater search area 12,000 feet down uh, with the propellers of their P-3 airplane cranking away. So here I'm just pointing they to the boy and listen to that. Yeah, okay. They can drop a boy and listen to it, but I'm very suspicious. It was a specious report. There was, there was no tapping. And I think it's part of this cover up of keeping the public's attention and heightening, heightening the tension, the anxiety and the hope. New noises are detected in search for lost Titanic tourist vessels, but the source is difficult to discern. Analysis of noises detected near the Titanic wreckage site that raised hopes of finding a missing submersible containing five passengers remains inconclusive. The U.S. Coast Guard told reporters Wednesday, yesterday, a Canadian P-3 airplane detected noises in the underwater search area. So I think, again, that's part of the cover-up. And what were they covering up? The shipment, the mass mobilization of troops going to Europe uh, to prepare to get us into a war with Russia, an unnecessary war, needless war. And just to finish off Ukraine, because they've already lost 350,000 dead and wounded, and they don't have any men left. So this is a, a fake news story that giving them more money, we've already given them $170 billion. But you know what is even worse? We've given them countless amount of modern weaponry, and they recently... A cartel, Mexican cartel gang was captured in Mexico 
and they were sporting one of these uh, anti-aircraft missiles. And when they checked, they checked the serial number, there was one of the objects, one of the uh, missile launchers that we gave to the Ukrainians. Yeah. Thank then, you. Your, your taxes are being paid to the U.S. government and also my taxes are being paid to the U.K. government. They're giving the money to <laughs> arms dealers. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and you then give all the older products that are still, you know, on, close to their sell-by date on the shelf. They give those to the Ukrainians, give them a crash course in how to use them, help them uh, guide the odd missile here and there. Mm-hmm. Then the new orders come in to replace the, yeah, the nearly out-of-date weapons. So the arms dealers are doing quite nicely out of this. Thank you very much. Yeah. And oh, your, your taxes and my taxes are going to fund uh, Ukrainians selling second-hand armaments being bought by mafia in Mexico. Wonderful. Yeah. And these people represent you? Did you choose these, these people to um, represent you in government? No. Oh, me I, I said not. <laughs> you know, Tim, I'd like to get back to some a very, very serious topic, which, again, dovetails and in, in, uh, intersects with UFO disclosure revelations that came out, uh, have come out in the last couple of weeks, since June 10th, when Dr. Stephen Greer had a major press conference at the uh, National Press Club in Washington, D.C., with some many whistleblowers, military whistleblowers. Now, we know, let me let this vehicle go by. Okay. We know that last March, a peace deal was almost brokered by Turkey with uh, between Ukraine and Russia. And the fact that Boris the Clown Johnson, who to meet his his, um, bromance friend uh, Zelensky with his violin, and persuaded him not to to go through with the uh, the ceasefire and the withdrawal and everything else, and to uh, continue fighting because we will support you indefinitely as, as much as it takes as long as it takes that's right but it's much worse than that Jim. turkey acted as a uh, an honest broker and they actually negoti- negotiated a ceasefire and a peace deal and just last week uh president putin had a uh, a convention a conference with african leaders that came, yes and he actually showed the signed initial document he showed he showed the signed initial document signed by the Ukrainian delegation that was guaranteeing peace for neutrality. Yep. And now in the last uh, two days, I think I sent you a copy of the article, uh, a uh, European Union ambassador named Cleverly has announced that they have put Ukraine on the fast track to become a member of NATO, which is precisely what Putin has said is intolerable, will not be accepted. And so they keep pushing, uh, as, I, as I've quipped before, even the Pope has to tell the truth sometimes. And last year, he made a little poem. He said, NATO caused this war by barking at Putin's door. Mm-hmm. And I have made the comparison between President Putin in 2022 and President Kennedy in 1962, when Kennedy was faced with nuclear weapons in Cuba, Putin was faced with biological 
uh, weapons laboratories all along the border of Russia. And people were loath to believe such a thing, but the truth came out first from Victoria Newland when she had to testify under oath before the Senate. And she said, yes, they'd established here since the Obama-Biden administration, 2008 to 2016, they and Pfizer had established 30 biological laboratories mm-hmm. there. And then the Department of Defense came out a couple of weeks later and said, oh, it was actually 46 biological research laboratories. And it was clear from the papers that uh, Putin captured. When his, the first targets were those laboratories. That's why the media here was saying, oh, they're attacking hospitals and uh, you know, nurseries and uh, medical facilities. Well, that's where they had put these biological research exactly. laboratories. Not attacking them. They were neutralizing them. No neutralizing them. Hey, guys. And abandoned. Yes. Uh, and, and that is on hold. She's uh, got a question. Sure, wants to participate. Uh, oh, you right? You guys can take her. Absolutely. Okay, let's bring up another. Come on in. Uh, let me get my control panel back. Oh, good grief! Where am I? Sorry about that. Uh, now we're the other side of the midnight news. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that sounds really good. Hi, yeah. Netta, you're on. Yeah. Hi. Hi. Oh, oh, thank you. I, I, I was unable to listen to the show previous to going on hold, but, uh, you know, I was going to talk about the, the things I thought about the sub, but, or the, the submersible, I should say. But this is also a really interesting topic, and I, you know, I have comments about that too. But uh, yeah, uh, so go on. Um, I'm kind of off in the middle of a thing now with you guys. I have I have a question for you. I mean, maybe it's not a question. Maybe mm-hmm. it's just like uh, sort of the, the grease the rails a little bit. Is there something you'd mm-hmm. like to say about uh, the Federal Reserve the connection between Titanic? Titan, Molly, what's around the corner? Is that something which could be... Absolutely, uh, yeah. Well, so, you know... Um, I was going to say that the passengers yeah. that got off the Titanic before the transatlantic um, crossing, they were in the know, I believe, and they were very pro-Federal Reserve, centralized banking. Mm-hmm. And Asta, who was uh, very wealthy guy at the time. He was against it. He went down with the ship, and the others survived and lived to tell the tale and set up the Federal Reserve. Dot dot dot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was. Uh, well, it was uh, one of the. Oh. J.P. Morgan was the one who got off the ship, and he took off all his treasures. He was scheduled to cross on the Titanic, and at the last minute, he took off all of his. Uh, treasures, uh, uh, you know, Greco-Roman art and uh, pieces of temples and statuary. And he said he had a cold, but he got off the ship and it sailed without him. But Annetta... Well, he, uh, must, have, he must have known about that cold a long time before because he also got the insurance policy all set up on it and made a pretty penny, insuring a, a, a rust bucket that had been, you know, wrecked a bunch of times. <laughs> so... But you know, there's a lot of other stuff too, like Jacob Schiff. You know, does that does that name ring any bells? Yes, it does. 
And how uh-huh. I learned well, that, that the meeting uh-huh. took place on a place called Jekyll Island. Yep. Mm-hmm. Next mm-hmm. year. Well, yeah. yeah, but but the but ring any modern day bells because who do we hear about yeah. the news that has yeah that's a that's a direct Adam connection. Schiff. Yes, Adam exactly. Schiff. And uh, yep. he's he's a he is a um, an operative for the Rothschilds, and they, they you know they place these people in these positions. Um, we know that the elections are super corrupt. That's how they do it. But you know it, it's uh, this is very modern day. But as far as the connection between the central banks and Federal Reserve being the, the, the kind of the lead of the central banks, but, um, you know, there's, there's so much symbolism in this. And when I first heard about this particular incident, uh, I was with, actually with Kintia and she mentioned it to me, and I instantly had this feeling like, oh, we're, this total psyop, right? And the more I look into it, then I can tell you all these things that are, Absolutely a psyop. So I, I tuned into the show right when Robert was talking about the situation with the pinging, which is a bunch of BS. Because first of all, it, no matter how you look at that, and, and I can kind of go into that a little bit, but if they indeed were still alive, which the, the Navy knew that they were goners before that, right? But if they were, they would have run out of oxygen well before that. So no, there's no way either either way that that could have happened. Um, and that that story was shopped out to the Rolling Stone. And the way that it was leaked out is very interesting because it came through the Coast Guard, which is now under the Homeland Security and Secretary Mayorkas. So there's a lot of uh, stuff there. But you have to say, well, you have to ask yourself, why would they do that? And I have a long list of answers of why they would do that because look at the news cycle, not only with Ukraine and, and worldwide, but also look at with Biden, the Biden, Hunter Biden crap, the uh, Durham testifying in Congress. Um, yeah. I wish I had a list in front of me. There's a long list of, of things that they wanted to flush down the gurgler with the, the news cycle. So speed has uh, gone free. What? I'm sorry, what? The cryptocurrency guy that sort of made off with an awful lot of money. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they, they took down five of his charges, correct. So, And, and these people are all, that's, that's a Rothschild there, too. Um, yeah. So, another important you know. I to share with you about the, uh, the uh, Federal Reserve and, and the Titanic. Um Mm-hmm. What date did the Titanic go down? 13. April 15th, 1912. 12, what, is, what is income tax day? What is income tax yeah. day? Well, and that's one April. of their high holidays, isn't it? They're one of their satanic holidays. <laughs> that's a big day. That's a big day. Yeah, Richard, yeah. Richard, I wish Richard were on the program because I sent him a, a video of a gentleman driving through California, and he was just uh, expounding completely on the symbology of the Titan going down, uh, mm-hmm. symbolizing the U.S. dollar uh, Im- imploding mm-hmm. and going under. That's exactly it. Yeah. Right. The thing so, breaking it. The thing breaking in half and and the implosion, but the the. You know, the Titanic, which was intentionally, which, you know, we all know that that wasn't really the Titanic, but 
you know, they set fires and it let fires burn for a week in the middle of that ship before they took it down. So that would weaken all the metal so it would split in half. Right. Thank you. Let's tell the audience, a fire broke out. A fire broke out in the coal. Tim, Tim, you can tell that story. We're both excited and talking at the same time. Very briefly, I mean, there was a fire in the coal bunker before it left Belfast, before it left Harlan and Wolf, before it even went. I think it went first to La Havre, and then it went to Southampton, and then went transatlantic. I believe that was maybe I'm, I'm I'm mixed up with that. But anyway, the point is, it left the mother shipyard while the coal bunker was on fire. I completely, completely, I forgot about that. Well done, Anessa. That's right, Anessa. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for bringing mm. that up. Well, see, so to me, because I'm big on symbolism, I look at that and I think, well, that's that's symbolic because they're they're bringing it right back around 110 years later, where they're bringing it back to where this creature was hatched, right? And if you mm-hmm. if you think, yes, the Titanic, Titans, um, you know, the the whole thing with uh, Ocean Gate, uh-huh. well, that's not an accident. And then they have this. You know this this woke dude up there saying all this ridiculous crap, including that he's controlling the uh, the thing from an Atari PlayStation or something like that. I mean, I saw the video. I I I was not really focused on on totally pay attention, but the whole thing seemed ridiculous. And then why would you think that titanium, which is very brittle, and and then uh, carbon fiber, which can flex? I mean, what what what's going on here, right? So and why would you put those two together and brag about it? To me, it, it reeks of a PSYOP. It's like a false flag, that, and it's, everyone's being set up. But when I first heard about it with Kinthea, I, I said to her immediately, I don't believe this for a second that this is the story. This is before all the pinging and all this other ridiculous rubbish that came out. But to me, it was like either – and this is going to go over on the side that I tend to like to, to wear my special hat, you know, but either there was no one on there and they, they needed to get people into protective custody for whatever reason, or there were people that were already done in that they wanted to have an excuse for, or they wanted it as an example symbolically. There's some, there's something else happening here where to me, that was the first hit I got intuitively. And I'll tell you, it was instantaneous. So I don't, I don't dismiss those because those are the most accurate ones where just bam, out of nowhere, right? <laughs> so something was awfully fishy. Then subsequently, all I've seen is more more stinky fish coming out of the hall, if you know what I mean. So yeah, something's not right. I'm going to say one thing I haven't said before, which I want to say very quickly, and that is that the window was only rated to 1,300 meters. They went down to 4,000 meters. So there's a slight issue. Right. And the guy, a mm. 50-year-old white guy, who actually brought attention to this, he was sued and dismissed. And then he countersued. And then I don't know what happened next, but they did die with a window that's only rated to 1,300 meters. Right. Well, we only have two minutes left. I would like to get a, a, a plug-in because uh, Kinsia reminded me that I published a very interesting article for a U.S. Navy serviceman who remembers Pearl Harbor. He served during the Korean War in the U.S. submarine service. His name is Darrell Gusner, and he submitted an article which I published. It's called Charade, 
Black Ops, Black Budgets and UFOs, and subsequently a follow-up article, which is called The Great American UFO Disclosure Blitz, AD 2023. And so that those two articles will converge with this article to give you the big picture of this gigantic PSYOP, which Meta has brought Okay, guys, we ran out of runway. Sorry about that. We're going to have you guys back. We'll pick up where we left off. You've been listening to The Other Side of Midnight. Our guests were Tom, uh, Tim Saunders and Robert Morningstar. Tune in tomorrow because uh, we're going to be covering some good stuff with John Brandenburg and uh, Mark, Dr. Mark Carlotto who gave me that orthographic correct photo that led me to discovering the Morgan Curve. See you then. Third star on the right. Straight on to morning. <laughs>